0: Listening to episode 236 of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Daigle. This week, I'm really excited to bring you something a little different than normal. Uh, I am not in the episode. Britt uh, was kind enough to reach out to Ben Orenstein, and he is in this episode talking about his new refactoring Rails course and what he's been up to. So, Britt is going to do the majority of this episode. Thank you so much to her uh, for setting this up. It's going to be great. Uh, Universe was a huge success, uh, and I'd like to give an apology for the long delay. I knew there was going to be a delay around uh, GitHub Universe for me just because I couldn't uh, do a lot of recording while I was in San Francisco. But unfortunately, we also lost an episode that we recorded uh, due to some f- weird audio file issues in the pr- in the tool we used to do the recording. So my sincere apologies for being off for so long. But I'm excited to be back. And I think this episode will really make up for it. Uh, and we'll have another episode out next week. I'm going to try and do a doubleheader next week, but we will see. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much for hanging in there. And I don't want to spend too much time because I really want to get to this episode this week's episode of the ruby on rails podcast is sponsored in part by rollbar Uh, rollbar helps you solve one of the things that we all uh, deal with in web applications and that's errors it can be difficult to get users to report errors with all the information that you need and digging through log files just isn't as useful as it used to be Rollbar helps you with their error monitoring tool, giving you a full stack trace, context, and user data to help you find and fix impactful errors super fast. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflows, like sending alerts to Slack or HipChat, or you can automatically create new issues in Jira, Pivotal Tracker, or Trello. You can add the Rollbar Ruby SDK as easy as gem install Rollbar, so start tracking your application errors in minutes. There's a ton of cool features, like sending request data for any Rack framework, it supports queuing frameworks like Sidekick Rescue Delayed Job. You can configure Rollbar's front-end JavaScript SDK without installing it manually. And of course, I mention this every time, my favorite feature, deep linking into your GitHub repos. So stack traces and rollbar will link to your GitHub repos. That's really cool. We have a special offer for listeners, go to rollbar.com slash ruby, sign up, and get the bootstrap plan for free. Rollbar is loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Again, go to rollbar.com slash ruby, sign up, and get the bootstrap plan for free. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is also sponsored in part by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data. Things like hosting web assets, acting as the origin for CDNs, storing user-generated content such as images, large media files, archiving backups in the cloud, and storing logs. The cool thing about Spaces is it's designed for developers. DigitalOcean has simply the essentials of object storage and that will save you lots of time all you need to do is name your space tap create and you're ready to go in seconds or you can use your favorite storage management tool and library including a large ecosystem of s3 compatible tools and libraries which can also be used in your space Spaces also has affordable and predictable pricing. DigitalOcean believes in simplifying their products to enable developers to build great software, and to do that, they look at every opportunity to remove friction from the development process, including spending less time estimating costs for storage, transfer, number of requests, pricing tiers, regional pricing, so on and so forth. Spaces is available for a simple $5 per month and includes 250 gigabytes of storage and one terabyte of outbound bandwidth. There are no costs per request, and additional storage is priced lowest rate available, one cent per gigabyte transferred, and two cents per gigabyte stored. Uploads are free. Much simpler pricing, go give it a look. Spaces provides cost savings of up to ten times, along with predictable pricing and no surprises on your monthly bill. If this sounds cool to you, if you store files, if you store assets, if you store avatars, if you store funny cat gifs, go give Spaces a try. To make it easy to try for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers, you can get started today with a free two month trial of spaces by going to do.co Ruby. Again, go give it a try with a free two month trial of spaces for both new and existing DigitalOcean customers. Go to do.co Ruby, do.co Ruby. Thank you so much to DigitalOcean for supporting the show. Now, on to the rest of the episode.
1: Hey, listeners, this is your Ruby on Rails co-host, Britt, and today we're doing a special interview with the creator of the new Rails course, Refactoring Rails, Ben Ornstein. Ben, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: While it is likely that some of our listeners know you from your many talks and podcasts, can you please give a brief introduction of yourself?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, People probably heard of me through my days at ThoughtBot. I spent six years at ThoughtBot originally as a consultant and then uh, running several of our SaaS apps over there. And along the way, I discovered that I loved teaching and in particular, I loved uh, video-based stuff and also conference talks. So I guess, I guess my, my teaching start happened uh, on the conference circuit. I started talking about Vim, and then as I learned more about Ruby and refactoring, I started, about, I started talking about that. And uh, I actually even ended up uh, effectively co-founding uh, Upcase, which is ThoughtBot's online Rails education platform, and made dozens and dozens of uh, Ruby-slash-Rails-related uh, training videos.
1: Awesome. Well, um, Ben, I'm really excited to have you on because when I was training for my first half marathon about a year and a half ago, strangely, uh, Giant Robots was my favorite podcast to listen to when I was running.
0: (laughs) Uh, oh, awesome. As an
1: ex marketer, there was something soothing and kind of gritty about hearing your products' ROI on marketing campaigns. Mm. And uh, as I was trying to crush those miles in, there was something about you and Chris that just I really love. So I'm so glad oh, that you awesome. continued podcasting. I, I think you're just great. Um, Thank you. So,
2: yeah, uh, let's Podcasting oh. creates such an interesting, uh, interesting dynamic between me and people that I meet because they always feel weird because they're like, I know so much about your life and I feel like it's weird for me to bring it up and i'm like no no it's cool that's that's kind of the point of the podcast you know like i'm i'm putting it out there on purpose
1: i think that's awesome I, I love the fact that you've carried the relationship with derek over from giant robots to art of product
2: yeah me too totally yeah i mean and that's kind of the end of the bio that i that i neglected to get to which is i i have since left thoughtbot and struck out on my own and uh, just finished uh, working uh, just released a, uh, my new course uh, that i've produced independently
1: yeah. So let's talk about that. So I've really sure. enjoyed listening. You progress through it on art of products. So if anyone's interested in uh, releasing their own course or even starting a small business, I highly recommend that you check out art of Product. You get to hear from Ben where he's putting this course together. We also hear uh, Derek talk about his company drip. It's a really great podcast to listen to. Um, but yeah, I really have been enjoying refactoring rails. I, I purchased the course myself last week. And awesome. as- thank you. Of course. And as someone who works in a legacy Rails application, as the listeners know, and teach new developers, it's it's really the perfect fit. So I, I'd love to know when you were writing and filming it, what type of developer were you envisioning could really benefit from the course?
2: Um, that's a good question. So I, I, I intentionally made the course over the head of beginner people. I actually think the beginner Ruby and Rails market is very well served by things that are out there. I think it's when you get past that initial uh, advanced beginner phase and start becoming an intermediate to, let's say, advanced developer that there's not that much content out there for you. I think people are just produce less of it or people assume that the market for that is smaller and it probably is. Uh, and so I was thinking of the person that has been, let's say, maybe working on a Rails app for a couple of years. Uh, and uh, starting to run into the problems that you never run into when you first get going. Like the first six to nine months of most software projects, if you're doing a, a halfway competent job, uh, are will typically go fairly smoothly because there's just not that much code there, and so you can add new features pretty easily. And there just is not that much code there, so there are not that many bugs, and uh, it's it's not painful. But later on, it's like when you're in like month 18, it really starts to to get painful, and that was what I wanted to focus on.
1: No, I think that's great. And, you know, as someone who teaches boot camp students, typically all the applications that my students are working on are Greenfield apps. And I, I tell them that it's more than likely when they go out and strike it out on their own that they're going to end up in a legacy application and
0: mm-hmm. knowing
1: the best tips and tricks and where where to even look in a Rails application. So how about for you? Like if you're getting into a Rails application for the first time, what are the first couple places that you're going to check out to kind of get kind of gauge what's going on?
2: I actually have um, a trick that I use pretty consistently, which is uh, I look, I run a quick shell command to count the number of lines of all the files in the app models directory and sort it. And so I can usually, what I'll find is that there are, in let's say like a medium-sized Rails app, probably two to three giant objects. They typically are god objects. Uh, if the application is like an e-commerce application, it'll be like order.rb, user.rb. User is always in there in a Rails app, just about. Uh, and then like sort of one or two domain concepts that are really core, maybe like order and charge or order and product, things like that. Uh, so I like to get a, I find that just seeing the, the relative sizes of these things gives me a lay of the land. Uh, and then I will start pulling open those first three or four biggest files and just see, I, I kind of just want to like browse through them and see how bad they are. Generally, I'm kind of looking to like, okay, how, how nasty is this thing going to get? And so I start with the, the biggest, gnarliest models. And if those are clean and tidy, then I can usually make a pretty good guess about the rest of the app being pretty good.
1: That's awesome. I, uh, most people will typically say the gem file. So I actually like your approach because mm-hmm. you can find the things that are going to be the the most troublesome right off the bat. Usually you can look at that gem file and just see that they, you know, they've included 250 dependencies and you kind of shudder a bit. <laughs> but, um, mm-hmm. I like that trick. That that's a good trick. Um, and then of course running the tests, I really love the simple cub gem just so I can see the test coverage. Um, but sure. no, that, that, that is definitely a good trick. So um, as I've been going through the course, it just amazes me. It it feels like a lot of the code snippets that you're using really do have like a a story behind them. So I'd Mm -hmm. love to know how difficult was it to come up with code to write curriculum on? Did you have to end up looking at a lot of open source code or were you just really sitting there and trying to imagine legacy apps that you might come across? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it was the latter. Uh, all of the code, just about all, like ninety five percent of the code samples in the app were all bespoke. Uh, I can't, and that was like my process for each screencast was okay. Let me think of a concept I want to teach, like um, refactoring tests by uh, introducing a page object, which is one of my favorite uh, things, my favorite techniques for, for tests. And I was like, okay, the first thing I need is crappy tests. And so I would just like spend a lot of time writing tests that were crappy in the right way, that that refactoring would make sense. And I, I think this is perhaps an underappreciated art in education in general, Is coming, but, I, but particularly for programming for me. Coming up with a good example is really challenging because you want something that is meaty enough that it looks real world. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear you say that it, it felt like I had pulled real examples or examples of the story behind them because you want that feeling where it, like it... This thing looks reminiscent of real work, for example. You can picture yourself doing this at work, uh, but simple enough that you can, or you're can you not distracted by the details and you can get to the point of the, the lesson quickly. And so I've always spent a lot of time on my examples and, and cared about them a lot because I think they're, they're kind of core to the educational experience.
1: I completely agree. It comes across as much more memorable Um, another person who's really, good at, who's really good at this and who you just interviewed is Avdi Grimm, uh, his book, confident Mm. Ruby, like fundamentally changed how I program just because a lot of his examples, he would walk you through a scenario and then he would walk you through what you could do and what you should be doing. And there's something about Mm. that that just really stuck in my brain because when I would go reach for that tool set, I would remember the little story because to your point, um, in a lot of your conference talks, people really enjoy stories and that that's how things are going to stick in their mind. So that, that's awesome. So one cool thing that you did is you actually sent out a sample episode of the course to your newsletter subscribers and we can link to Mm -hmm. that in the show notes. But I had a couple of thoughts on, so you uh, linked to 10, it was 10 tips and tricks uh, for rails, correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the first one that I definitely had like a big reaction to is, I really do not enjoy to do comments at all. I really do believe mm. that those belong in tickets. Have you ever had a situation where developers were very adamant that they keep to dos in the codebase? Like, where does that like feeling come from for you?
2: No, I don't. I don't think so. I I have seen it done a lot. I think most people respond fairly well to the suggestion of like, hey, this isn't really a great place for this. And I found that there's a pretty easy way to argue with uh, or to make make your point which is if you grep the code base for to do you almost inevitably find a lot of them and then when you do get blame on them you almost inevitably find that they are quite old and so it's just like it's it's not I I get the impulse to do it Uh, it feels like you're leaving the to do right next to the thing that needs done theoretically that should make sense Um, but it just turns out that it doesn't feel like anyone ever opens up a file and Says, how many to dos are in here? Let me just knock out all of those. Or, like, gets to work on a Monday morning. It's like, I'm going to do all, I'm going to kill out uh, all the uh, to do comments we have and just make sure we get all those done.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, my boss, um, he's the director of e commerce at our, our nonprofit. He will often go through Code Climate and he will look for. Security issues or a particular method, a particular object that is crufty and just needs some love and he'll generate tickets that way. But I don't mm. think in our entire time has he actually gone through a code base looking for actual to do items. You're right. Like I've never sat down and just pummeled through to do. So I've gotten to the habit mm-hmm. of when I've come across one, just delete it and create a ticket if it's legitimate, yeah. especially when the to do to do's are silly when they're like. I can do better here or something like that. Just something completely vague. You're like, okay.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You actually reminded me of something. Yeah. um, Which is, I have, I have, I have thoughts on the idea of going through like code climate scores and creating tickets based on, Hey, this thing is a C let's make it an A. And that's, that's not bad. Like that's, that's probably a good use of time. Uh, there are much worse ways to spend your time. But my personal uh, approach that has worked pretty well for me is I try not to refactor things just because I could refactor them. Like, oh, hey, this object over here is a little bit bigger than it could be. Let me just um, extract something from it. I typically try to do my refactorings as part of doing something else like my favorite time to refactor an object is right before i need to change it and so the first thing i want to do is refactor the object so that my upcoming change is going to be easy and then i'll open up a pr for that refactoring and we can look at that independently and then i will branch off from there and try to make my change and this this has some some nice benefits to it but one of my favorites is i've had the experience of starting to refactor an object and then going to make my change and then realizing like, oh, you know what, uh, after all, it turns out after all, this isn't a very important um, change to make. But the refactoring can still get merged and it feels like I haven't wasted that time.
1: That makes complete sense. I like that a lot. Um, okay, so another thing that you brought up is using guard clauses at the beginning of a method. So that way you can almost find the easy outs. Um mm. I love that idea, and it's something that I try to do a lot. So the idea is that you try to find something, you try to find situations that require you not to execute the entire method and get rid of them mm-hmm. early. So if you can kind of talk on that a little bit, um, that would be great. Yeah. So the tip
2: was uh, actually the tip was to avoid explicit returns except for guard clauses. So in Ruby, we don't need to mention return most of the time because the last thing that we evaluate in a method uh, is the is the return value by default and so returns is kind of uh, redundant. But uh, I, do kind of, I do like early returns as guard clauses. Uh, and the example for my course was um, there was a, um, I stole from Discourse, actually, it was somewhere where I, I pulled a real open source example, and they have a guard clause at the beginning of a method, which is you know, return false if staff, for example. This is a method that was checking if someone has posted too many times in a topic, and they wanted to exempt staff members. And so before you even hit the body of the method, there's just this thing that, that bails out early. Uh, and I like returns as guard clauses there because if you did an if, if you said if um, like, you know, if not staff then do all the stuff otherwise. Like you end up with this, uh, you can end up with a lot of nesting. But if you do, you can add like two or three early returns by saying you know, return false if this, return false if that. And uh, you don't end up with that nesting. You can just sort of see all the guards up top.
1: That's awesome. And the the last one that I wanted to bring up from the sample episode, and something that I am definitely guilty of, because I work on a dev team of two, uh, we don't have a bin setup script of any sort. So mm. Ben had uh, spoken about how... Every repository should have an easy way of being able to get set up. It makes it more welcoming. Um, If you have any open source components of your app, like you want to make it really easy for new users to be able to get onboarded. Um, You had noted it's not worth testing, but it's still a great idea just to have that for new users. So as someone who used to uh, work as a consultant, I'm sure this has come up a lot, especially when you're handing the project off to someone else. So did you have a situation where an app was just incredibly tricky to get up and you moved over? Over to that, or is that something you've been doing from the early
2: on? Um, it was a habit I picked up at Thoughtbot for sure. Uh, I don't remember when we standardized on that, but you're right that like it was very common on Thoughtbot to roll on and off projects. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to be moving over to this project, and I need to get this thing set up. And we found over and over again that readmes are uh, setup readmes are almost inevitably out of date, and so the new person will always need to do some sort of talking and, and uh, updates with the people that are on the team and uh, bin setup scripts suffer the same fate it turns out because we typically don't test them and so uh, they will be out of date as well but at least they execute and get you most of the way there and then when you update the thing hopefully it's better for the next person so it's like if we're gonna have to communicate and we're gonna have to update a thing because it's not under test it may as well at least be some executable code that will save me some time
1: I think that's great too it, because it, it might force you to see that you have a dependency in your your repo that you didn't need or you might be able to drop some steps. so it kind of forces you to do some documentation, which is great
2: totally. and it's 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 nice it's just a nice thing to do for yourself too. like you'll you'll mm-hmm. inevitably find like, oh, I need to set up a new laptop or oh, I'm gonna work from home today. and it's just it's so nice to have just just run one script and have everything work and then the tests fire off, and you're like, cool, I'm good, like let's get to work.
1: Awesome. Um, So as you mentioned on your podcast, so you've been speaking at some Ruby conferences, and then it sounds like you're going to be taking a tour of some Ruby meetups. So cross your fingers, listeners, that Ben is coming your way. Um, Do you mind talking about the Ruby conferences that you've been going to? And I hear you have your first stop scheduled.
2: Yes. Um, So you can actually do more than cross your fingers. If you have a meetup that gets a good turnout, I would like to come talk at your meetup. Uh, I'm working on the talk right now. It's going to be basically a re, uh, a reworking, a refactoring of my uh, refactoring from good to Tra- great talk that was uh, has been my most popular talk to date. Uh, so if anyway, if you're interested, let me know. I'm looking for places to go right now, so uh, feel free to email me. Uh, and um, the places I have been, I was at Rocky Mountain Ruby and Southeast Ruby. And funny enough, I actually wasn't talking about refactoring there at both those conferences. I was talking about Elm, which is kind of my new obsession. Uh, And I just today actually scheduled my first uh, meetup uh, appearance, which is at the DC Ruby Users Group, uh, November 16th.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I am... uh... Tapping my face because I'm only a four hour drive away. So that might be worth the trip. Mm, I'm hoping okay. we can actually. So I'm based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that you'll come out to RailsConf next year since it was announced that RailsConf is coming to Pittsburgh for the first time April 17th through the 19th. So fingers mm, crossed okay. on that. <laughs> it's really exciting. It. Like, Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh's finally getting uh, considered for a lot of these tech conferences, which is really cool. We have a very busy year next year with conferences coming, but I'm really excited about it because um, so the API that we use at work is an arts and ticketing API. And we're the only Ruby on Rails application that uses it in the world. So we're, we're pretty we're pretty proud about Rails at work. So we're just really excited that the conference is coming to Pittsburgh. Awesome. Um cool yeah so um, I as I noted before, you know my my marathon training, I really enjoyed listening to you talk about numbers on giant robots and you've hinted that you'll be talking about um, numbers on art of product. So do you ever find it difficult to be so candid with successes or failures or do you find it therapeutic?
2: Um, both um, It's definitely a little challenging uh, working in public, has very, has powerful uh, rewards and costs, I think. So the rewards are that people know what you're doing. Like having a podcast with, uh, you know, a decent listenership and having uh, done a lot of conference talks and shared a lot uh, has caused a lot of goodwill for me. And so I've had people email me and say, hey, I'm buying your course because I've learned so much from you over the years. And I'm not even doing Ruby now, but I want to support you. And that is like so amazing. I feel so lucky for that. And But I think a lot of that is my willingness to just talk about the things that I'm doing, even when they're not going well or when they're hard or when they're embarrassing. Like, And the, the drawback for me, the, the pain from points I feel is that I tend to be, <laughs> I get excited about new things easily and I yes. change my mind quickly. <laughs> and I, 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 change, I, I change what I want to do a lot. And so... I will get excited and I'll go on the podcast. and be like, I'm going to do this. And Derek's like, cool, that sounds good. And then next week I'm like, no, 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 that was bad. I'm going to do this instead. And he's like, <laughs> uh, okay. And it's it's there's um, there's something in my uh, programming, and I think most human programming, that changing your mind publicly a lot feels really, it feels dangerous to develop that reputation. Mm-hmm. Or something like somehow, like I feel like I have a cognitive bias from like, this is really scary to put out there like that I'm changing my mind a lot. And I'm not sure quite, quite why it is, but I, I feel that. And so, I certainly take benefit. I certainly, I certainly get benefits from from the, the transparency. But I would say that the cost to me is kind of in stress. Where like I worry. I try not to, but I worry like what people are thinking about me flip flopping around on ideas or saying, am I gonna, I'm gonna hit a certain deadline and then not hitting that deadline? I guess it's sort of my, my concern of people's perception of me.
1: Well, I can tell you as someone who's been listening to you, I'm I'm envious because it always. Everything you do is always with so much conviction and you always have so much passion that, you know, as people who are listening to your podcast who might be in the same job or learning how to code, it just always seems like you always put yourself in the path of opportunity. And so it's mm. it's really a, a joy to listen to you make those decisions. That being said... I really did enjoy listening to you make price changes <laughs> on all the mm. products that you've come across because I really enjoyed when you'd be like, I changed the price and I made a bunch of money because things weren't tuned correctly. So that yeah. that part of me too, while that wasn't terribly risky decisions you were making, it was it was really enjoyable to hear you not just assume that because something's going well that that's the way it should be.
2: Mm, totally. Well, and and thank you for the first part of that. That's that's really wonderful. Uh, that's that's great to hear. And, and yeah, I love I love particularly talking about the things that people don't usually talk about. That to me is when I try to grit my teeth the most and make sure we talk about it. Like mm-hmm. um, early on when I left ThoughtBot, I was having some rough times and I was feeling really uh, scared and like um, shaken up, I guess. And I tried to not hide that. I, I didn't want to put on a happy face and just go on the podcast and be like, everything's cool, great. I'm going to figure something out. It's going to be awesome. I try to share uh, the good stuff and the bad stuff <clears throat> uh, because... The less people talk about it, I feel like the more I want to make sure we cover it just so people get a full picture of what's actually going on with me and what goes on in a normal life.
1: I've always wondered this about you. It it feels like you get your energy. Like if I had to guess that you were maybe a half introvert, half half extrovert, it feels that you get your energy from other people, but you also seem to get energy by facing inward and writing code. Is, Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, that's dead on.
1: Okay, sweet. <laughs> good, uh, good, um, good to know that my mom's psychology degree is <laughs> rubbed off on yeah, me a little decide,
2: bit. <laughs> yeah, if that's yeah, if that's funny. We have a similar background. My mom is also a therapist, so we're both programming oh, cool. uh, people with therapist mothers.
1: Very cool. Well, speaking of therapy, um, so one thing that I really try to do as a developer is. Uh, in order to just stay balanced, I really like to um, be athletic. I like to work out. I play roller derby as our listeners are well aware of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And I really like the fact that you were trying to get out and meet people since you're working by yourself and you joined a rowing team. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's, that's definitely right.
1: Awesome. So, um while you're traveling, how do you find your do you find ways to um, get out and be active, or has that been harder with you not being back in Boston the entire time?
2: Um well, so far, i've I haven't done a crazy amount of travel. Uh, so I was I was anticipating a sort of walkabout where I was going to just be moving between Ruby meetups and conferences and and talking continuously. And I ended up scheduling fewer than I uh, uh, originally planned. Shocker, I changed my mind on something. Um, <laughs> and so um, uh, I haven't had, I've actually mostly been in Boston. And so my, my exercise stuff has been what it usually is, which is uh, I get really excited about a thing and I do it for six weeks and then I get totally bo- not into it at all and I switch entirely. So like rowing was a perfect example. And then like, then it was handstands. It happens to be lifting weights right now, but I just I constantly switch what I'm doing just because that's how my brain works for some reason.
1: Well, you'd be a perfect candidate for a class pass where you get to try all kinds of different gyms under one membership. Totally. Yeah. I just tried yeah, a actually. pound class the other day where you you beat, you get a, a pair of drumsticks and you basically hit a lot of things. So <laughs> I actually really <laughs> wow. enjoyed that. So
2: you, I highly recommend it. Are you sure this it. wasn't in Portland?
1: <laughs> it was not. It does sound like a very hipster thing to do. But <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, okay, cool. So um, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up about the course or anything that you wanted to tell the listeners about why they should purchase the course or um, anything that I didn't cover about uh, refactoring rails?
2: Um, actually, yeah, there is one more thing I want to mention. Yeah. Um, if the course sounds good, I hope you will check it out. Uh, but if you are someone that is in a position where the cost of the course is uh, makes it, unfeasible to you, particularly if you're someone that's not in the U.S., like not a U.S.-based developer, please do just email me. I'm happy to offer discounts for people. I set pricing based on U.S. developer salaries, but that's not the reality across the world. And I don't want people to not be able to get the course because of that. And so uh, just shoot me an email. I've been sending out discount codes to people that ask. Uh, Nonprofits, too. Students, same deal. Um, If you're a working developer and you have a good salary, then, you know, please buy the course if if you're interested in it. But otherwise, you know, if if money's a problem, let me know and we'll we'll work something out.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. That's incredibly kind of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. You answered so many questions I've always wondered about. So I really appreciate it. And listeners, it's definitely worth buying the course. So I highly recommend you check out refactoringrails.io. Thank you so much, Ben.
2: My pleasure.